The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. I just got back from Dallas, spent three days down there at a conference. Um, where somehow I got invited to participate in, uh, in a closed-door discussion on, um, on the age of the earth. And so the, the only ones who were invited were inerrantists, those who believe the Bible is without error. Uh, so that allows us to have a place of discussion that is underneath this book and uh, the top scientific evangelical organizations both young earth and old earth had their representatives there and then there were um, numerous Old Testament scholars that were also invited and um, so there's 20, 20 of us in the room and After the first night, I, I found myself, I was sent back to the book of Ecclesiastes, where the author says, The Lord has put eternity in man's hearts, yet he has done so in a way that man is not able to determine what God has done from the beginning to the end. And then it says, God does it this way so that man will fear him. God makes... Not everything in our grasp, he puts, I think, in everything that there is in reality, an element of puzzlement, of mystery, in order that we would not let our hearts get too big, but that we would be humbled under his mighty right hand and be moved to fear him. So the message of the book of Ecclesiastes, it says at the very end, so the sum of everything is this, fear God and keep his commandments. Ecclesiastes is a book of puzzlement where I believe, most likely Solomon, at the end of his life, after all the mess that he made, so early in his life, writing Proverbs, they show up in our Bible, Toward the end of his life, it says he had multiplied so many wives, he went after many, and they turned his heart from him, and he ended up worshiping numerous gods. If I understand Ecclesiastes right, this wisest man who ever lived, apart from perhaps one, I think he comes back to God. And he says something that is, I mean, his message is so poignant as I even walk through this list here. Just, oh God, life does not make sense. So much of it seems out of my grasp. Help me to fear you and to keep your commandments. Even when I feel very small in my grasp of how you're running reality, help me to fear you. And keep your commandments.
One of the key elements in Deuteronomy was uh, when, when we read about the king and what the king was supposed to look like, it said he's supposed to have the word of God with him so that he would fear the Lord. Fear. And I'm going to do something on the fly here. Um, so that I can make a point. So, within the former prophets, that is... um, Okay, one second. Um, I'm not having a good start for my day here. It's not good to try to teach on the fly. It's... What's amazing as you walk through the former prophets, maybe I'll try to get this next week, is how little fear the people had of God. In fact, when you read the books and you look in, when did the kings fear God, what you're reading is that they don't fear him over and over again, and it doesn't mention that they did fear him. The call is there, but the people don't follow through. And they were living in a broken world, and they... In the midst of their brokenness, they didn't fear the Lord. They turned from him. Today we're back in 1 Kings. And that's where I want to go right now. So as we go there, I know I feel like I need to pray uh, a little bit scattered from my morning. So pray with me. Heavenly Father how broken this world is, how much there is that we don't understand. But you are on the throne. You are shepherding all things well from beginning to end. Nothing is out of control in your eyes. And so we put our trust in you. We pray that you would give us a steadiness, a sturdiness, a confidence in you, a God who is unswerving, unrelenting, ever for us in Jesus. Thank you that no power formed against you will prosper. Thank you that those who find refuge in you will not be moved. May you exalt yourself today, even as we read these stories of brokenness and faithlessness. May it move us to the rock that is unchanging. I pray you'd help me now overcome my scatteredness and bring clarity for your glory and for the good of your people in this room. Amen. Last week we covered the first two sections of the book, Solomon's rise, reign, and disobedience, and the division of the kingdom. Today we're going to be looking at the demise of this kingdom and the fall of Israel. 
Here's a little synthesis for where we arrived at last week. Number one, the book never lowers its call to obedience. The kings aren't allowed to just be okay. They're supposed to be surrendered to Yahweh with their whole hearts. And yet the book also stresses the massive disobedience of man, the conditional nature of the covenant, and therefore the reader of this book finds his hope not placed in himself, but only in the enabling of God and the character of God. The Lord is going to have to provide. Number two, the exiles would have recognized the absolute failure of the Davidic covenant. So they're sitting in exile. The book ends before the temple is rebuilt. There's no mention of the temple. So likely the author of the book of Kings is living in exile, which means he knows why, all the, why they're there now. He's, read, he's reading the story and he's seeing failure after failure after failure. 20 kings in the north, bad. 18 of the 20 in the south, bad. <clears throat> so he recognizes the failure of the Davidic line. And what's it supposed to do? When you see a past that's scathed with wickedness, when that's your heritage, when you didn't have a dad who taught you well, when you weren't modeled godliness, what is your hope? First Peter chapter 1, 19, you have been ransomed from the feudal ways of your forefathers through the precious blood of Christ. You look not at the bad kings, you look in hope to the ultimate king. It would have pushed them to full reliance on the commitment of God to His own fame and on the sin-overcoming mercy of God toward His elect. That's what this book does. And for those experiencing the loss of a king and the loss of country, the book would have also heightened hope in God's eternal kingdom and future king who would satisfy all demands, who would rule justly and establish global peace. All those promises have been made And the book of Kings says, keep holding fast to the promises. So even as we start today with that kind of a board filled with pain, the message is the same. But now we're looking backwards as well as forwards, not just looking forwards. We're seeing that the future has intruded in the person of Christ, and yet not everything is done yet, and so we're still living in hope. And we have to live in light of the promises of God. And while we do that, we fear God and keep His commandments. So here's where we were last week. I'm going to show you another map now. And the new map is going to start at the top of the red, and it's going to come down to about here. So uh, it, it doesn't cover the same amount of space. So this section of the map is going to be altered when the kingdom divides. So this is what the world looked like as best as we can tell, when David and Solomon were at the helm, they were the superpower in the ancient Near East. And now the kingdom gets divided. The center section gets ripped apart. Ten tribes in the north, ten tribes in the south, and the control that Israel had over all of the vassal states, the suzerain, big king, was David and Solomon. As soon as Solomon 
dies, the empire gets divided, and Israel gets weak. And all of those once um, servant neighboring kingdoms all broke free. And that created deep hostility that we read about in the book of Kings. All the enemies that had surrounded Israel during the period of the judges had been put down during the period of David and Solomon, but now all those enemies are once again rising. And it brings, so there's internal tension in the book of Kings. Internal meaning that people are not following the Lord, and so there's a sickness within, but now there's also once again external tension. Peace has been surrendered, rest is not what they're experiencing, and so they're longing for Sabbath. They're longing for peace. Here's a breakdown of comparison between what we read in the book of Kings between the northern and southern kingdom. So size-wise, the southern kingdom has only one tribe, or sometimes it's called two tribes. I dealt with that last week. The northern kingdom has ten. The dynasties. The southern kingdom never leaves the dynasty of Judah. It's son after son after son after son until you get to Josiah, and then he has a son on the throne, then a grandson on the throne, then a son on the throne after him. So a grandson, a son actually gets skipped and then he gets thrown in. So it's son after son after son after son, except at one point there's a queen mother, Athaliah. So when we talk about 20 kings, we actually mean 19 kings and one queen who called herself the king. That's on David's side. And then in the north... So it's all one dynasty, 20 kings. In the north, you actually get 10 dynasties and 20 kings. So somebody raises up. They might be there anywhere from four months to 50 years. But then a coup happens and they, a new family rises to the top. Two capitals, Jerusalem and Samaria. Here's Jerusalem, here's Samaria. And they're most of the time in civil war. Worship centers, Jerusalem, Bethel, and Dan. On my map, I don't have Bethel and Dan on this one. But Bethel is right here, and Dan is up above the Sea of Galilee right up there. So at the two... At the northern and southern part of Israel, Jeroboam I, the first king of the northern kingdom, sets up two worship centers. And there's temples in both places and golden calves. And I showed you a picture of the remains of the northern uh, high place in Dan. Economic status. This plays into our understanding of the prophets. When we're reading about Hosea and Amos, as we're going to, Lord willing, Later in the semester, we recognize that they are battling a very wealthy community in the north. Whereas Isaiah and Micah's audience in the south is quite impoverished. That influences the problems that are addressed in the messages of the prophets. The types of ministries that they had. And then the northern kingdom goes down in 723 
Assyria shows up just as the prophets said that they would and destroys Samaria, takes all the nobles of the land up to Babylon or up to Assyria. Um, We can almost see it. You get the very end of the Euphrates River up there at the very top, that blue. And Assyria is kind of up in the corner of the screen right up there. And so the the nobles of the land all get taken out of... One second. They all get taken out of Samaria, which is the capital. Only the poorest of the poor are left in Israel, and all the nobles are taken up and put as slaves somewhere up in Assyria. But then the Assyrians replaced all the Israelite, all the Israel nobility with their own. So now there's Assyrians who are living in Samaria. And in time, they intermarry with the poorest of the land in Israel. And a new people group is shaped. They're called the Samaritans. So the Samaritans of Jesus' day are the leftovers from 723 and who intermingled with the Assyrians in marriage. And the group that comes from them are the Samaritans. All the while this is happening up here, Judah is still around for 150 years. Until 586, when Babylon finally comes, and next week, Lord willing, we'll walk through that judgment, the Babylonian judgment of Judah. So you can't read all the words on the screen, I doubt, but see if you can get the timeline. This right here is Saul. 1050 B.C. Saul, David, and Solomon each had 40-year reigns. So Saul's right here, 40 years later. 1010 B.C. is David. 970 B.C. is Solomon. 930 is when the kingdom was ripped apart. Now you've got a northern line and a southern line. There's 20 kings in the north, 20 kings in the south, but you can see how much longer Judah stuck around. Their 20 kings ruled a lot longer. So 723 comes and Israel is exiled by Assyria. Babylon doesn't take Judah down until 586. Now, in 539, Babylon loses its power and Cyrus the Great comes. We don't read about this in the book of Kings. This part of the history is coming and I'll bring the diagram up more later. Cyrus the Great of Persia takes over In 538, he makes the commission, everybody can return to their land. And Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, along with Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, head back. And in 586, the temple was destroyed. In 516, right here, the temple was rebuilt. And then Israel is in the land up until the time of Christ. But they're there without a king. They're there with problems from the Samaritans who are constantly giving them problems in Ezra and Nehemiah. And everything around them is not peace. Malachi even says the Holy Spirit never returned to the, to the temple. But there's hope that he will one day. So this is Old Testament history. And I've got... Saul, David, Solomon here. Jeroboam the first is the first king up here. Ahab is a top bad dog. Over here, 
Hezekiah and Josiah in the Judean line are the top two good kings. So just trying to give you a little bit of a visual. Here's the key question for the day. How did the king do at aligning with the covenant? That's the question that appears to guide the writer of this story. He's not concerned with who the world thought was the best king. He's most concerned with focusing on did they follow God or not. And there's two specific areas that they take most attention to. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 14. That's where we're going we're gonna to begin to look there. Two key areas. Did they take God's presence in Jerusalem at the central sanctuary seriously? Was it important to them that God's presence was in Jerusalem? And the second thing is... What's their treatment of idolatry? Do they hate it? Or do they practice it? And so all the stories, and there's 40 of them, because all 40 kings are covered in the book of Kings. 40 little stories, and they go back and forth, back and forth, chronologically and in parallel, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, back and forth. And... So as you're reading them, what comes forward is the author is very concerned with whether they take Jerusalem as an important thing. Is God's presence, does it matter to you? Are you dependent on Him? Is the word through the priests important to you? Do you care about the kingship that's centered in this city? And then second of all, and it's related to it, what is your view of syncretism? Are you willing to take Yahweh and other things? Or are you saying, there's nothing for me but Him? And everything about my life will be controlled by Him. Or are you going to live with certain parts of your life closed? Dirty closets that aren't cleaned. Behind the scenes activities. Or very forthright activities. And yet claiming to be a God follower when your life doesn't line up. Here's some summary examples of how this works in the book. And as it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. As if it wasn't a big deal to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. When it is a big deal, and the author wants us to know that. So I'm going to go back and look at the map. Here's Ahab ruling in Samaria, and he takes a wife from Phoenicia. Tyre and Sidon. Sidon is right up there next to Tyre in Phoenicia. And he takes the king of Sidon's daughter, Jezebel, as his princess. And that is a bad thing. Second example. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Jehu's the one who put down the dynasty of Omri. Of Omri. Omri is Ahab's father. So we read about Ahab in the top quote. 
Jehu's the one that God raised up to put down Ahab's dynasty, just as he promised in light of the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel. You're going to be put down, and God raises up Jehu to do it. Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Okay, we won't worship Baal, but we're still not going to take Jerusalem seriously. We're going to deal with Dan and with Bethel rather than Jerusalem. Jehu didn't change the course. So he followed in the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of Yahweh, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. So the author is actually um, judging based on, are they really pursuing the Lord? And they want us to read it that way. They want us to see that that's a controlling device in the book. One of the elements that's, uh, that we just don't see in the narratives, in the story part of the Bible that often, is when the narrator takes a long time to tell us what his point is. Usually, these are just sermons written in story form, and you and I are left to try to figure out what the main point is and who are the good guys and who are the bad guys simply in reading the story in light of the covenant documents. But in 2 Kings 17, which we'll look at closely next week, 2 Kings 17, the author takes almost an entire chapter to say, this is why the exile happened. This is why the entire entire country went to pot. And one of the things that he says is this, They abandoned all the commandments of Yahweh their God. They made for themselves metal images of two calves. They made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven. They served Baal. They burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens. They sold themselves to do evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. That's why the exile happened. So remember, I said this, the book appears to be written to try to clarify for people who are in exile, saying, God, what have you done? You've turned from us. You're supposed to be for us, not against us. And this book is saying, in the words of God, I didn't run away you ran away. You feel insecure. You feel hopeless. You feel despondent. I'm here. I haven't left. Will you trust in me? Rather, you've gone and you've tried to find comfort in so many other things. That's why you're where you're at. So, we begin in 1 Kings 14. Look with me at verse 21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that Yahweh had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. Rehoboam's mother's name was Naamah, the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done. We turn, well, I turn the page. I don't know if your Bible does. Turn the page. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Israel. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was 
Ma'akah, the daughter of Abishalam. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not holy to Yahweh his God as the heart of his David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, Yahweh his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite, of course. Verse 9. In the twentieth year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. He reigned forty-one years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Ma'akah, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land, removed all the idols that his father had made. Verse 14, But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days, until we turn the chapter. Look at verse 25 of chapter 15. Nadab the son of Jeroboam began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and walked in the way of his father and in the sin which he had made Israel to sin. Then they unpack the story. Final reading, verse 33 of chapter 15. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Tirzah. He began to reign 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had made Israel sin. So what you have is an analytic pattern. It's like an annal. Like somebody has taken account, there's a big book, and it's a source document for this author. The kings of Judah and the kings of Israel have a what appears to be a formal legal annal that has been pulled from by this author. He's going to give us a lot more than those kind of details, but there's this formal pattern, this structure that introduces every king. So we see the structure up on the screen. What year did he come to reign? So 19 of the 20 kings have this formula in the north. Only 17 of the 20 have this formula in, sorry, in 19 in the south, 17 in the north. But they're going back and forth between these kings based on chronology. The name of the father is given. Both the Judean kings and Israelite kings mention he's a son of someone. The length of their reign. Everybody, we're told, how long their reign was. The age that they started, we don't hear that, of the Israelite kings. The name of the mother, no mention of the Israelite kings. And then a summary evaluation, what kind of king were they? And 19 of 19 give us that, 14 of 17 give us it. Now I mentioned last week that at least the name of the mother... I'm guessing there's something regarding the age, but I haven't pondered that one. The name of the mother seems to me to be very significant. In that, so we read it here in chapter 14, it mentioned 1421, Rehoboam's mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. Then we read in chapter 15, verse 2, that 
Abijam's mother's name was Ma'akah, the daughter of Abishalom. Why are the mothers mentioned, and why aren't they mentioned on the Israelite side? And I proposed that this book is written in order to build a reminder of the, mess, the messianic hope that stretched all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that there would be an, an, a lasting tension between an offspring of the serpent and an offspring of the woman. Two family trees that spring forth from this. Those that are identified with the hostility against God, like the serpent, and those that are aligned with God and have hope in the ultimate offspring who would conquer the servant, the serpent. And everything is going to come through the mother of all the living, not the mother of the dead. Eve is the mother of all the living. And it's the offspring of the woman that Genesis 3.15 mentions. So my proposal was that the reason that 17 of the 19 that have the names, 17 of them mention the mother, is in order to remind the reader that hope is going to be found through the line of promise. And of the two, intriguingly, why, why aren't the two mentioned? Both of those two alone tell us that though they were kings of Judah, explicitly it says, they walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. So there was something distinct about the 17. The mothers aren't mentioned Otherwise, the two aren't mentioned because they're more like this group. Brother David. So I'm just wondering, the, three, the two mothers that are mentioned so far, the first was Rehoboam's mother, and she was Ammonite. Ammonite, yep. Which was part of Solomon's disobedience to God. And Correct. Foreign women. But how about Abishalom, and Makkah and Abishalom? From the names, can you... Tell us more about their, uh, their, yeah. Abi Shalom would mean my father is peace. Yeah. It could be simply short for Shlomo, which is Solomon's name. Okay. And my father was Solomon, but it, it's literally my father is peace. And Ma'aka. Yes. She would be, Ammonite. that's right, she would be considered Israelite. But the Ammonite. That's a Hebrew name for certain, but the I'm trying to recall what it would mean. Um, but the the mention of the Ammonite, I mean, in, in my mind, it's intriguing. Um, if I'm right that this is even amongst um, eighteen of twenty wicked king, that they're not, they don't. Sorry, let me repeat that. There's twenty kings in the south in Judah. Twenty kings. Nineteen of them have full-blown uh, analytic statements made about them in this, in this pattern. Eighteen of the twenty are given great celebra- celebrative reports, Josiah and Hezekiah. They're the only two of the forty kings that are given such praise. But there's seven total kings in Judah that we're told did a good job. But what distinguished the five from the two, so there's seven total, two of which are Josiah and Hezekiah, what distinguished the five from the two is that they still didn't destroy the high places. So Asa is one of those seven. He's a good king, except 
He didn't get rid of the pagan high places and let them stand. Whereas Josiah and Hezekiah wiped them out, destroyed them, ripped them down. Now, in this, in this perspective, if I'm getting this right, even the mention of an Ammonite as the mother, I mean, who do we have? We've got Ruth the Moabite in the line of Christ. We have Rahab the harlot, according to Matthew 1, in the line of Christ. And so it would be a portrait, I think, of God's redeeming, redeeming grace. So, summary evaluation. That, this is the part I want to focus on now, and we're going to look speci- at some specific texts. Back at the text we just looked at, summary evaluation. What do we learn? In 1421, uh, wait a second. I guess it's 1422. So during the reign of Rehoboam, Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a summary statement, giving clarity to the nature of the reign. Chapter 15, verse 3. He walked in the sins of his father that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord. He walked in the ways of David, or he didn't walk in the ways of David or God. 15.11, and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. So these statements of summary on the Judah side are, did he do good, did he do evil? Is he aligned with David or is he separated from David? That's how they're working them. In Israel, David's not mentioned. Everything is about Jeroboam, the first king. And King after king after king after king, we're told, walked in the ways of Jeroboam. They didn't give up the high places, and in doing so, they led Israel to their ruin. Verse 26 of chapter 15. Nadab did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and walked in the way of his father, and in his sin which he made Israel sin. Verse 34. Asa, sorry, Baasha did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and walked in the way of Jeroboam. That's the pattern that we're seeing all throughout the book. So, I mean, it gets old, it gets cumbersome, it gets wearying. And so the story last week that I told you of my, at that time, five-year-old, who, after three weeks in the book of Kings, just was like, Daddy, this is getting really old, hearing about these kings that sin and God has to kill. Um, Can we move on, Dad? Does it get any better than this? And we're supposed to feel that. The pattern, the structure is designed to help us just feel, bam, 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 bam. And it's not even until the end that Hezekiah and Josiah's reigns come. So, a high amount of selectivity in this book. And we're going to try to get our hands in, into this. This is not just... I mean, no history is objective. It's always subjective. The author is picking and choosing. Otherwise, we would have a very long story. The Bible. Let's watch it. You know, it's very selective. And the selectivity shows up in amazing ways in the book of Kings. So we're just up here in an airplane. We're flying over these two big books. Jeroboam the first verses... 
Jeroboam, sorry, Jeroboam the second, it should say, Jeroboam the second versus Jeroboam the first and Ahab. Let's just see how, they're, how they compare. 2 Kings 14. Just going to jump into 2 Kings for a second. 2 Kings 14, 23. In the fiftieth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. He reigned 41 years. And this 41-year reign produced the golden age of the northern kingdom. We know of Jeroboam the second outside of the Bible. His power was vast. His wealth was great. And yet, in the mind of the Author of Kings, small reign. The world says, oh, he's a man of influence, a man of power. We'll give him seven verses. It's kind of a blah reign. It wasn't excessively bad. It wasn't excessively good. And because of that, he doesn't make much in the book. This book camps on the extremes. The extreme loyalty versus the extreme wickedness. And it highlights especially this end, because that's, that was the life of Israel. So, we consider Jeroboam the first and Ahab. Each one of them has 22-year reign. So together, 44-year reign, years of reign, they get 10 whole chapters in the book. So a 41-year reign of, in the world's eyes, the most powerful Israelite king, he gets seven verses... And now these two guys, Jeroboam the first, the first king of Israel, and Ahab, the most wicked king of Israel, of the northern kingdom, they together get ten whole chapters. And the best I can tell is it's because they were exceedingly wicked. Hezekiah, Josiah, they get five chapters. And they're the good guys. Of all the kings, they receive the highest praise as being those who took God's presence seriously and who fought off idolatry. So here's what we read of Hezekiah. He trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to Yahweh. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses. He went all the way back to Moses. He took his Bible seriously. He was a man of the book, and it changed his life. 2 Kings 23 of Josiah, Before him there was no king like him. And then the only spot in all the Old Testament where the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.5 is echoed is in 2 Kings 23. He turned to Yahweh with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his being, all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did anyone like him arise after him. So this book takes time to camp on the wickedness, takes time to camp on the loyalty. Now, part of the reason that Jeroboam I and Ahab may have gotten a lot of face time is because this book isn't only concerned about detailing the sins or the loyalties of the kings, it's designed to highlight God's word is true, 
God's Word is faithful. God's Word is powerful. And it does it by focusing on prophets. So one of the reasons that Ahab gets so much time is because God, because Elijah ministered in Ahab's day and God wants to give Elijah a lot of face time. So let's consider the prophetic confrontation. I call prophets covenant enforcers. If you read the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, or Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, or the Twelve, when you're reading their words, think about them as preachers, just like Pastor Jason. Think about them as men who have their Bibles open, and their Bible was the Pentateuch. That's all they had so far. It was growing, but that's what they had. And when they were preaching and calling people to heed the voice of God, they are echoing Moses. When they're indicting people for their sin, they're recalling Moses. When they're talking about promises of future blessing, they're recalling the blessings of the covenant. And when they're talking about promises of future wrath, they're they're echoing the curses of the Old Testament. We'll get into that more in our study, but the life of Elijah. Turn with me to... uh, Well... I'm looking at the time. I'll see how far we get. Um, The prophets were designed to say, God is telling the truth. You should listen to him. Yahweh warned Israel. This is 2 Kings 17 in that summary chapter at the end. Here's what it said. This is the summary of all that we read about in 1 and 2 Kings. This is what God's doing. Yahweh warned Israel and Judah by every prophet of every, and by every seer, saying, what was he saying? Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I command, commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Heed the voice of the prophets. Listen to the preacher. Come. Don't sit hard-hearted. Don't let your ears be deaf. Come. Come, God, the God of mercy is calling you back. He didn't just waste you like he was fully justified to do. He sent you a preacher. Will you have ears to hear? And 2 Kings 17 says, No one listened to the prophets, but they would not listen. They were stubborn. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Hear, nobody heard. Same word. But they were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in Yahweh, their God. This is a statue that's been put up on Mount Carmel in Israel. Let me see if I can show you where Mount Carmel is. So Mount Carmel is this little little, uh, hook that you see on the map in Israel The mountain stretches right there. And that's where Elijah went head-to-head with 400 prophets of Baal. And so, this statue has been put up there, and I've got another picture of Mount Carmel that I'll show next week. This is of Elijah getting ready to chop off one of the 400 heads um, because God took, took his word very seriously. Next week, my hope is to unpack this prophetic voice. It's such a strong voice. It's a beautiful voice. A voice of hope that calls people to trust in the Word of God. 
if you want homework, read Second King, sorry, First Kings 17 and 18. Ask yourself, why does the story open up in First Kings 17 saying, through the prophet, until I say so, there will be no rain in the land. What is the, no rain a sign of? God's displeasure. It's, a, it's an explicit curse that would come on Israel if there's disobedience. So right away, the signal is the prophet is issuing covenant curse. And then the lack of rain is going to control two stories. The first story in chapter 17 of Elijah, before he gets to Mount Sinai in chapter 19, chapter 17, he goes down to the Jordan River where God sends him and he doesn't have any food. And God supplies the food. Then God sends him all the way up to Phoenicia, outside of Israel, in order to, if no one in Israel will believe the voice of God, God will go outside of Israel and he wants to teach a Phoenician woman that his word is real and that his, he's worth believing in. And then Elijah comes back into Israel. He's saddened because of seven. he doesn't think there's any more prophets. He thinks he's the only God follower in the whole land. And God says there's 7,000 more. And then he goes head to head with the prophets of Baal. And consider how the lack of rain plays into that story as well. The woman is, that he meets in Phoenicia is about to die, and her son is about to die because there's no water. And because there's no water, there's no crops. And in a cursed and broken world, God is able to overcome such things by the power of his word. He upholds all things by the power of his word. Right now, everything being upheld, moment by moment, you and I breathing, you and I looking, you and I hearing, only because he's speaking it into existence. Hebrews chapter 1. And so even when everything looks bleak, his word can bring life. There's a message in there for us this morning. And we'll pick up on that next week. Let me pray. Father, go with these folks, some with very heavy hearts, but you, a God who is able to take all of our cares upon yourself and uphold us by your powerful hand. May we not be those who don't hear. May we hear and through that hope. May we fear you and keep your commandments. May your spirit show up by your grace, working. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God Who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies Through Covenant for His glory in Christ.